Hi, and welcome back to the 11th episode of the DCVC. I'm your host, Akash Bhatt, and with me today is Mark Khan, founding partner of Omnivore, an impact venture fund that invests in Indian startups developing breakthrough technologies for food, agriculture, and the rural economy. Previously, Mark was the executive vice president of strategy and business development at Godrinch Agrovet, one of India's foremost diversified agribusiness companies. At Godrinch Agrovet, Mark was responsible for corporate strategy, M&A, R&D, and new business incubation. And prior to Godrinch, he spent his career at Syngenta and PFM. He's earned his bachelor's from University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from Howard Business School, where he graduated as a Baker Scholar. I had a great time speaking to Mark about the Indian agri-tech space and how investors think about it. So let's hear more from Mark in the episode and jump straight into it. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I've heard a lot of great things about you and Omnivore from a colleague of mine. I'm hoping to learn and explore more today. But let's begin with your story. What are some of the key events that led you to where you are today? And more specifically, what attracted you to agri-tech and venture capital? So I come from a fairly non-traditional background for, um, for a VC. Uh, I never would have anticipated as, you know, earlier in my career that this is what I would spend the vast majority of my career doing. So uh, I'm originally from, from the U.S., uh, was, was educated at, at UPenn and, and Harvard Business School. And prior to, um, prior to starting Omnivore, I worked in the agribusiness industry. So I worked for Syngenta in Switzerland. And then in 2007, I moved to India, moved to Mumbai with Godridge Agrovet. And Godridge Agrovet is a, well, it's the agribusiness arm of the multi-billion dollar Godridge Group. At the time I moved, it was a mid-sized struggling company. And I was brought in as part of a, of a turnaround that had been initiated by the Godridge family. And that ultimately was was very successful. And Godridge Agrovet today is one of the strongest agribusiness companies in India. And that's uh, how I found myself living in India in 2007. And I was with uh, Agrovet for six years. And during my time at Agrovet, where where I oversaw uh, strategy, business development, and, and also functions like like R and D and M and A, during my time at Agrovet, um, came up with the idea. Um, of launching an agri and food focused venture fund uh, together with Janesh Shah, who is my co-founder and omnivore, who at the time was the CFO of Nexus Venture Partners. We, um, we came together in 2011 and launched Omnivore. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's where it all started. What was the motivation behind starting your own fund? You could have probably done this at Godridge and set up their own corporate venture fund or led their corporate venture fund. But what led you to start your own venture capital firm outside of what you were already doing? Well, Akash, that's a funny story because originally 
uh, Omnivore was basically supposed to be the, the corporate venture arm of Agrivet. And we quickly realized that for a variety of strategic and structuring reasons, it didn't make sense to do that. And hence, it got spun out as a completely independent entity and has been such um, ever since 2012. Now, that's amazing. I did not know that. And that did not come up in my research. So I'm glad to hear that, you know, you, this was a part of, uh, or the concept was a part of something that you were previously working at. Yeah, it was, um, look, this, this essentially started because, you know, back in 2000, Jesus, 10, 11, as the person at, at Agrivet who was looking at, at M&A along with the CFO, um, I started seeing a lot of early stage deal flow. And, and I think you have to kind of, you know, take yourself back a decade. The VC ecosystem in India was much smaller. And so niche startups in an area like ag or food didn't have traditional VCs that were particularly interested in what they were doing. And as a result, they would pitch corporates to see if they could get some, some startup funding. And we were very frequently um, pitched by, by agri and food related startups. And, you know, we tended to say no, right? Uh, th these were, these would be balance sheet investments, um, consolidating losses, depending on how you did your accounts. And it, it just didn't work for, for Goldridge Agrivet. But, but I saw enough volume of deals and enough quality entrepreneurs that I really started to feel that there was an opportunity in this space and that traditional VCs were, were ignoring, you know, essentially 25% of the Indian economy and half the Indian population. And so it just felt like there was something to build here. And that's what we built. We, we raised a, a first fund of 260 crore, uh, roughly $35 million dollars. And, um, you know, we got that raised in 2012 and 13 and never looked back. Thank you for providing a little more context there, Mark. But one of the things that you mentioned in that segment was agri-food. Now, we've heard a lot of terms that get thrown around when we're defining the space. You know, there's, um, there's agri-tech, there's agri-food, then there's farm tech, which includes livestock, and then there's seed tech and soil science and many others, right? So before we delve a little more deeper into ag tech as a sector of investment, I'm curious to understand the definition in your opinion and how Omnivore looks at it. Sure. So we like the term agri-tech. That's what we generally use to describe our sectoral focus. I avoid, I used to use the term ag-tech until I realized that Everyone misinterprets it as ed tech, education technology, or ad tech, advertising technology. And so I've, I've tried to evangelize that people should stop using it because it very frequently is misunderstood. And we always say agri-tech. We don't tend to use the term agri-food tech as much, even though our, our good friends at AgFunder do. Because agri-food tech has been defined to include the entire restaurant and food delivery ecosystem, which, while linked to much of what we do, is still very, very, very distinct from the farm focus of, you know, of, of, of agri-tech. So when we define agri-tech, we say there are sort of nine, uh, nine themes that we look at, and I'll, I'll simplify them. 
It includes farmer platforms. It includes agri B2B marketplaces. On the consumer side, it includes farm to consumer brands. Um, it includes rural fintech. And then there are some deep tech themes and some life sciences themes. And that's probably the easiest way to understand it. So it's not just technologies for farms and for farmers, but everything related to agricultural production, distribution, um, and even some of the downstream activities where they link directly with, with the full value chain. So we, we wouldn't include, you know, a swiggy or a big basket there, um, but we would include, you know, brands that, that have an agricultural backend like a, like a Licious or a Wycook. Well, thanks for providing more context there, Mark. Now that we have a little more understanding of what the landscape encompasses, I'd love to understand the history a bit more. You've been investing in Indian agri-tech for almost a decade now. How has the space evolved in that period? Can you take us through your learning as an investor and as an industry insider? Sure. Um, you know, I think in general, when we, when we first started investing in this space, it was, you know, it was a niche of a niche, right? In 2011 and 12, um, no generalist VC was remotely interested in this space. And I think most strategic investors were likewise not expecting anything innovative to come out of, out of India, you know, uh, global or, or otherwise. And I think what we've seen, you know, our thesis was always that, that India has incredible entrepreneurial talent, incredible managerial talent, and actually punches above its weight globally in agribusiness. Some examples of this, if you look globally, the largest tractor producer by volume is Mahindra. Globally, the fifth largest agrochemical company is UPL. Both of these are, are based in Mumbai. Jane Irrigation is, is the largest irrigation company in the world. And, and so India has always built, really for decades now, globally competitive leading agribusinesses. And our thesis was that, that young Indian innovators would be able to leverage India's biodiversity, the strength of technical managerial and agribusiness talent in India, and, you know, and India's you know, tremendous advantages with respect to, to education and institutes and universities, and build next generation breakthrough technologies in, ag in agriculture, in food, and for the rural economy. That was, that was the whole idea behind Omnivore. And really, over the last decade, what we've seen is that has, has played out, not, not always in a linear fashion. I think for the first few years that we were investing, in general, entrepreneurship in India at that time was still much smaller than it is today. It the people that were doing startups at that time, it was idiosyncratic at best, right? Um, not necessarily great corporate pedigrees, certainly not great startup pedigrees. Um, they were just brave. 
And I think what we've seen over the decade that we've been investing is the quality of talent has improved a hundredfold, right? It's gone from people who are just strange and brave um, to people that had fantastic corporate pedigrees that were leaving their corporate careers to start up. And now in our second fund, if we look at the last few deals we've done, many of the founders have incredible startup pedigrees because they earlier worked for some of the leading startups in India. And, and so we've seen an, a surge of talent in the sector. We've seen a much greater increase of interest by generalist VCs, impact VCs, and strategics, right? So I guess it was in 2015, 16, Excel started um, investing in the sector. And, you know, in the last 12 months, we've done two deals with Sequoia, uh, a deal with Excel, a deal with Bloom. Um, we've done two deals with Bloom. We, we've had a lot of We've had a lot of opportunity to help bring generalist VCs into this space. There's huge interest. We've seen a rise of, of agritech as an investing theme among impact VCs. And finally, strategics have gotten in on the act. So um, we saw, I guess, in 2018, Mahindra invested in, in Mitra, uh, one of our portfolio companies, which was founded by Devneet Bajaj, who you've had on your podcast earlier since he's been with uh, Kalari, I guess, for the past year or so. And um, similarly, we've had Nutraco, a, a global uh, animal nutrition company, invest in a portfolio company of ours, Eruvaca, which makes uh, IoT devices for aquaculture and is, I think, certainly the only VC deal that's been done in, in Vijayvada. So um, we've seen a huge amount of interest from strategic investors in the space. And, and it's been interesting to just help build this ecosystem over the last decade. Mark, you speak about India punching way above, above its weight. And there is a small but rapidly growing number of startups and investors aiming to increase the efficiency and profitability of Indian agriculture all along the supply chain, right? Now, the period between 2013 and 17 witnessed a lot of downstream investments and on the other hand you had upstream investments that attracted roughly just around 28 percent of the total funding of the whole five-year block and your fund is one of those that is active on the latter the latter side the importance of partnerships within supply chain from upstream to downstream has been emphasized as the key ingredient for success of the agri-tech industry yet you see investors you know, being more comfortable in, I would I put this very liberally, losing money on the downstream investment side and penny-wise when it comes to upstream investments in this space. What are your thoughts on it? Why is this happening? And is that mentality amongst investors changing? Or are you seeing that change over the last few years? Sure. Um, I'll start by saying it is changing very quickly. And, and there's an increasing interest in both upstream and midstream supply chain agri-tech technologies. But I think if, if you kind of go back in time, it basically makes sense. So your typical VC has a much closer, generalist VC, has a much deeper understanding of, of the world that they inhabit. And what is the world they inhabit? They inhabit an urban world and they inhabit a higher income world. 
right? If we were, you know, to, to joke about the sort of things that get funded in Silicon Valley or from a consumer perspective got funded, one VC who's, who's more entertaining than I said that the easiest startup theme to fund is whatever your mother used to do for you, now a startup does, right? So make you food, do your laundry, drive you around. Um, I think when it comes to India, most of the consumer VC activity from say 2010 until 2017 was largely focused on urban consumers and you could say the top quartile of urban consumers. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a, a huge profit pool to go after. And so I, I, I don't think it should surprise anyone that the quote unquote downstream investments were much higher, much greater than, than the upstream investments. The downstream investments we're talking about Zomato, we're talking about Swiggy, right? We're, we're talking about um, Grofers, right? All of these were, were urban themes that were addressing the, the challenges of upper income Indian consumers. And then from, from that upper income beachhead moved forward to try to tackle the Indian middle class. Most Indian VCs have very little understanding of agriculture, agribusiness, and the rural economy. There's no reason they should, right? Your typical Indian VC has a Silicon Valley tech pedigree or, or used to work for McKinsey, right? But most of their experience has been urban and industrial as opposed to agricultural. And I think that's where Omnivore, you know, that's where we were able to build our niche as subject matter experts who could help generalist VCs, impact VCs, and strategics understand opportunities in this agri-tech space. And I think really ever since 2016, there's been an increasing focus on the part of the generalist VC community in India on upstream opportunities. Interestingly, that started because in the 2015-16 winter for consumer, there was like a little downturn um, that, that killed things like Tiny Owl. Um, during that time, Indian VCs suddenly woke up to B2B uh, businesses, right? In particular, B2B platforms and, and, and SMEs, right? And so we saw that with Uran, we saw that with Power to SME, and we've seen that in fintech, where, where the overwhelming focus has been on, on serving the millions of SMEs across India. And I think that began to open the generalist VC mind to opportunities in agritech, because essentially farmers are like micro SMEs, right? A farmer is not, a, is not only a consumer. They're a consumer the way that all of us are consumers. They, they buy food for themselves. They, you know, they, buy, they buy personal care items. But every farmer is a micro entrepreneur. They have a top line, they have a bottom line, they have a small business they are running with cash flows and credit challenges and risks. And I think as generalist VCs began to understand the SME ecosystem and the opportunity for startups in, in the SME ecosystem, Agri came under that umbrella. And it still basically remains there. And I think that was the major sort of shift in thinking over the last few years. You know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but in my opinion, the challenges within the agri-tech is that the industry is so broad and there's so many different needs, whether you're dealing with cattle, dairy, plants, 
permanent crops. And within that, whether you're dealing with spring, harvesting, weeding, there are a lot of different things that you can do as a startup. Seed to shelf, as they say. Sure. You need some sort of focus in order to have a thesis, but at the same time, thesis cannot be super narrow for you to attract generalist VCs. As investors, we like to see opportunities that scale and grow, opportunities where you know you can really grow the business. What are some of the themes that investors like yourself and Agitech today are looking at? Where are the opportunities in India, both from a sec- sub-sector perspective as well as a geography perspective? So I think it's important to understand that it's hard to generalize the lives of 130 million farmers and their families, right? So whenever anyone says, oh, well, what's the top theme for agri-tech in India? I'm like, okay, let's, let's take a giant step back and understand what agriculture in India really is. Right. Right. So we've, you know, if, if we were to look from a profit pool perspective, right, and and gen- and try to pr- to provide some contours, there are some very interesting profit pools within the agricultural ecosystem in India. Right. So again, we've got 130 million farmers and their families. It's about half the country. Right. We've got. Um, an average land holding that is very, very small, that's just about 1.2 hectares on average per farmer. But that is not spread equally. About 20% of the farmers in India own about half of the land. So you have the same inequality in the rural economy that you have everywhere in India, frankly, everywhere in the world. India is globally dominant in many many commodity value streams, or, or at least heavy hitters in many um, commodity value streams. So for example, India is the world's largest producer of cotton. It's the world's largest producer of milk. It's number two in sugar, wheat, and rice, number two in fruits and vegetables, and you know a very large producer of things like tea and coffee and spices and pulses. From an opportunity perspective, Some of those value chains are lower hanging fruit than others from an agri-tech angle. So for example, let's take aquaculture, okay? Aquaculture in India is 50,000 farmers producing $5 billion of shrimp exports. It's one of the most modern sub-segments within Indian agriculture. It's largely in Andhra and Gujarat, a little bit in West Bengal, Tamil Nadu, and Orissa. The average farmer there has a smartphone, right? In fact, almost all aquaculture farmers doing shrimp in India have smartphones. And it's a, and, and it's an, it's a value chain that exports globally, right? Largely to the US and Europe. And so as could be expected, you're seeing interesting opportunities for agri-tech in, in Indian aquaculture. We have a Fund 1 investment, Eruvaka, which makes IoT devices for aquaculture farms. And while they sell substantially in India, they have huge exports to Latin America and Southeast Asia as well. And more recently, we've backed a startup based in Chennai called AquaConnect, that's building a farmer platform across the entire Indian aquaculture ecosystem, both export-oriented shrimp and domestically-oriented fish. 
So that's one value chain that is ripe for disruption with farmers that can afford innovation. Another interesting value chain like that is horticulture, right? Horticulture is essentially fruits, vegetables, flowers. What's interesting about horticulture? It's more profitable than traditional agriculture. It's more oriented towards consumers. You have to understand one unfortunate thing about Indian agriculture is the government is such a dominant buyer of, of rice and wheat uh, because of the FCI and the minimum support price system that it essentially, those farmers essentially just produce for the government. And, and that's, you know, that's Punjab, Haryana, Western UP, and, and a little bit in, in the sort of Kaveri Delta. But in horticulture, everything being produced is being produced with a consumer in mind. And, and oftentimes for export, for example, you know, India is a massive exporter of grapes now. Uh, we're a substantial exporters, uh, exporter of pomegranates. And then you have the entire apple trade in India, largely for domestic consumption. These farmers in general are wealthier, more progressive, and more technologically inclined than a lot of farmers that just, you know, either produce for subsistence, and there are many of those, or that produce to kind of sell into the, the controlled uh, grain ecosystem in India. And so we see a lot of interesting opportunities in horticulture. We recently backed a business with Excel and Mayfield called Clover that's trying to build a greenhouse grown fresh produce brand across India. Um, you know, and, and is and is retailing on a B2B and a B2C basis and is working with the tens of thousands of greenhouse farmers in India to help them get better value for what they produce. Similarly, you know, we have Fussel, which is an IoT device for that, that helps horticulture farmers understand what's happening on their farms in terms of microclimate, soil, um, uh, irrigation and every other control to help them lower their cost of cultivation and improve their profitability. So horticulture is another interesting space. You have dairy, where India is the largest producer globally, and we've taken a very large bet there that's, that's worked out well for us called Stellaps, which is the largest tech stack across the dairy ecosystem in India. And, and, and there are other examples of this, value chains, right, or geographies, where you have more opportunity than you know, if you were to, to just generalize Indian agriculture as if it was, you know, 130 million people doing the same thing. So I think it's important when we talk about it, we always say there, there are certain lenses. There's a value chain lens, a commodity lens. There's a regional lens. And then there's a strategic lens. And, and we try to use all three when we identify um, what we are interested in in Indian agriculture at any given time. No, I love that. And I want to, as a follow-up to that, you know, I, you talk about the vast opportunity, 130 million farmers, that's a great target audience, horticulture and dairy providing opportunities for profitability for farmers as well. So when you're looking at evaluating companies, what are some of the things that you, that you look for? Like what needs to stand out for you if a company or a founder is pitching an agri-tech startup to you? So I will, I will speak to the agri-specific and the general um, with, with respect to that question. So generally, we look at the same stuff as any other VC, 
Um, I always like to say, right, you know, it's, it's team, it's uh, technology, and it's traction, right? Those are our big three. We want to see a world-class team. We want to see really differentiated technology, ideally IP-protected technology, and we want to see some amazing early traction. From an agri perspective, everything we look at, we want to see something that's solving a, a problem for, for these 130 million farmers in India. And we think the 130 million farmers in India have three major challenges that they need to resolve in order to thrive in the long run. There is a challenge of, of profitability. And I want to be very clear here when I say this. It's not necessarily a challenge of productivity. I think for a long time, um, people talked about, you know, we just need to increase yields and push up production. And, and I think, you know, we all know what happens in India if all of a sudden you have a bumper crop of tomatoes or onions and no market for it. It winds up getting dumped in the roads because there's no storage infrastructure, no processing infrastructure to absorb it. So what we always say that farmers don't have a productivity problem, they have a profitability problem. You can solve a profitability problem by getting them paid more for the same amount that they produce, right? By changing the, the value chain. You can increase the amount they produce as long as it doesn't glut the market. And you can lower their costs and all of those in, in a variety of ways, including their cost of finance. And all of those improve farmer profitability. So improving farmer profitability is one major challenge. A second major challenge is improving farmer resilience. How do we enable these 130 million farmers to not just increase their profitability, but lower their, their standard deviation of, of income, right? Lower their VAR. And that means building more durable value chains. That means getting them to, you know, use risk management tools, getting them access to finance to cover downtimes like now, right? Getting them to use insurance. And so all of those, you know, and, and, and various commodity risk management products. So all of those technologies, we lump into things to, to improve farmer resilience. And then finally, there's the theme of agricultural sustainability. Because in the long run, India will never be able to, to succeed in agriculture until it reduces the amount of water it consumes in agriculture, until it stops destroying its soil, and reduces the amount of toxic chemicals being used in the space. And so from an agri perspective, when we get beyond team traction and technology, we start looking to see how, you know, whatever agri-tech company is pitching us, how it fits into these boxes of um, profitability, farmer profitability, resilience, and sustainability. Because those are where we think the, the opportunities are the greatest and where the need is the most critical. I'm glad you brought up the subject of sustainability, and I want to extend that concept to investments as well. One of the questions I often put forth to my guests is that is that of sustainability and responsible investing and scaling. We could talk about at length when it comes to sexier sectors and how that traditionally attracts investors. What kind of parallels can we draw with the agri-tech industry in, in the context of sustainable investments? Look, um, 
Agri is fits very well into global ESG themes, um, which is environmental, social, and governance. It fits very well into the the core of of impact investing. In fact, for a long time before the generalist VCs were investing in Indian agritech, most of the investments came from impact related funds. Like you know, Omnivore fits into that world as well. Uh, but others include, you know, Avishkar and, 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 you know, there are many others, Lok. So in general, when you're investing in Indian agriculture, it, it, the, the ESG challenges, the impact challenges um, are really more opportunities because pretty much everything we're doing is, is making the world better for these 130 million farmers and and reducing the environmental strain on India created by agriculture. So if those are are things that that are that interest you, then then agritech is a great place to be. Can you talk about the biggest misconceptions that you have heard about agri-food or agritech founders and uh, startups that are working in this space? So I think the biggest misconception, right, um, is well well it's sort of interlinked one is you can't do startups in agriculture because indian farmers are poor right and and that's just it's an incredibly urban privileged and clueless thing to say right yes many indian farmers are poor by the way let me just extend that many indians are poor right and and right. If that by that same thinking, you never would have launched a Nika in India, right? You never would have launched a Flipkart. You never, you know, would have launched a a boat, right? Uh, for for audio, right? Right. You have to understand that these 130 million farmers are not homogenous, and that there are some rich farmers. There are some upper middle class farmers, there's some middle class farmers. And yes, there are absolutely lots of poor farmers and some of the poorest people in the world. Um, but it's not homogenous. And you can certainly find a huge total addressable market, even if you're just focused on the top 20%, um, who again, own about half of the land in India. And I think the other side of that of that misconception is that, oh, agri in India is only an impact theme. I think that's absolute nonsense, right? Please, please tell Anand Mahindra that he's running, uh, a, you know, an impact fund, right? <laughs> tell, um, you know, tell Jay Shroff at UPL, who is rolling up the agri, uh, agrochem sector globally, that he's in an impact business. Yes, we all, our businesses are socially and environmentally impactful, but, you know, our entrepreneurs are driving for scale and transformation. Now, you know, I've spoken to a couple of founders who have probably tried having startups in this space and have failed in doing so. And in their assessment, they identified that they tried building products with little or no on-site or on-farm experience. And that in turn made the whole process of selling much yeah, more the challenge. To extend the question uh, a little further, what are the biggest challenges of building agri startups in India, apart from convincing farmers to adapt the technology? So, look, I think, I think talent is an interesting challenge in this space because you, you have a lot of very smart, 
very skilled people from digital pedigrees, and most of them know nothing about agriculture. And then you've got a lot of people that know a lot about agriculture, but not a lot about technology. And bridging that talent is something that, that we've seen as a challenge time and time again, but people are doing a great job of that. Our, our team at Fussel, right, for example, in this, this horticulture IoT company, one is a former software programmer, the other is a former software product manager, but both of them grew up in rural India um, with, with fathers who worked in the agribusiness industry. And so they, they sort of were able to, to synergize those worlds. The, the Stellaps founders have done a great job of taking their backgrounds, the, the, all five of them were from Wipro, and then bringing on board sectoral experts in the dairy industry. So I think one of the challenges is there's just sort of a mismatch of, of expertise and you have to find a way to bridge it. And I think when you do, because otherwise what you get is you get these like really well-intentioned, right, urbanites who know nothing about agriculture except, you know, they visited their, you know, grandfather's ancestral land twice, right? And then they think they, they, they know about about agri or they say, you know, I, I constantly hear this thing. My father's a farmer. No, no, dude. Your father works for a corporate and happens to own some land that has been in your family for, I don't know, hundreds of years that you lease out, right? Doesn't mean you're a farmer, right? It doesn't mean you understand agri. And so I think that, that there is this expertise gap but I think increasingly great agri-tech startups are bridging that. You asked broadly, like, what are the challenges? The challenges are the same with any product, uh, you know, any, any startup in India. It's finding product market fit and, you know, identifying big enough problems to scale great companies around. I don't think it's, it's agri-specific. I think in general, people have to understand that agri is not monolithic, that there are these regions and sub-segments and value chains. But I think, you know, the, the, biggest, the biggest challenges in, in agri are no different from the challenges in, in any other sector. So would you go on to say, or let's, let's put it this way, this could be a double-edged sword here, this, what's going to drive more long-term impact in India? Is it the agriculture sector or is, is it the food tech industry? I, I think increasingly they're working together. Um, you know, I, I think if, if I look, for example, at Clover, one of our portfolio companies, they're supplying most of the food delivery companies in India. Um, I think if we look at, at the grocery delivery and the food delivery space, the agricultural volumes of those companies are still very, very small. Right? Maybe they're working with 10,000 farmers in all of India, maybe 20,000 at max. Most of the movement, buying and selling of, of, of produce in India is still through traditional mandis. Right? That was why we, we, we made that investment in Bijak with, with Sequoia and Omidyar. Right? Because Bijak is trying to revolutionize that, agricult that traditional agricultural trade between Arthias and and buyers right and commission agents that whole world of mundis that's still where where indian agriculture really flows through i think farm to consumer brands are very interesting but i think the number of farmers that are engaged in those value chains are still very small so if you ask me what's gonna 
have a bigger impact on Indian agriculture, the upstream or the downstream, I still think it's the upstream. Extending that and talking about building products for the global market, do you think Indian startups are ready and thinking about the global market as such when it comes to the agri-tech space? And if so, what are the biggest barriers to entry for Indian ag-tech entrepreneurs when they're trying to expand to competitive markets, such as those in Europe and here in North, in, in North America? So I think most of, I, I think in general, the, the companies that are looking at opportunities outside of India are largely hardware and software product companies, right, as opposed to service businesses. Um, and it's really about finding comparable product market fit outside of India. For example, Eruvaka has found fantastic product market fit in Ecuador. Ecuador produces almost just about the same amount of shrimp as India does in a much smaller country with fewer farmers that are much larger. And yet those farmers immediately saw value in the Eruvaka tech stack, um, which had been designed for Indian farmers, um, but, but you know, effortlessly could be installed uh, across Latin America. I think you know, many of our startups, many of our product startups are looking at those opportunities. And I think the key is finding farmers either in value chains or just smallholder farmers that are similar in size and ability to pay as Indian farmers. That's, that's really where, where Indian agri-tech startups will see success abroad. Now, this is probably a question for the founders at Eruaka, but what does the sales process look like at that point when you're talking about global uh, clients and customers? You speak about Ecuador. If you're an investor thinking about opportunities and investing in companies that can be taken global, what are some of the things that you're looking at in, in terms of the immediate challenges and hurdles that these global startups can, can really accomplish? And how do you as investors play a role in that? So we really, let, let, me, let me put it this way. We focus on Indian agri-tech startups solving Indian problems. We keep in mind that many problems faced by farmers in India are similar to farmers faced uh, to, to problems faced by farmers across the developing world, right? Whether we're talking about Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America. So whenever we're looking at an Indian agri-tech startup and they say they're interested in global opportunities, we're, we're trying to understand how credible their product would be outside of an Indian setting. Um, I don't see many Indian agri-tech startups that are focused on North America or Europe, nor do we look at them. It's really this kind of what, what, what in the development world they say South-South collaboration. It's really these sort of South-South opportunities that, that, um, that Indian agri-tech startups have generally on their periphery. It's usually not something they're immediately planning to do when they're trying to raise money. It's something that they recognize could happen eventually. Now, that definitely makes sense. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the ongoing COVID-19 situation and how that's really impacting farmers, food producers, and the space as such. As an investor, what can you do? And B, how are you thinking about the next 12 to 24 months? Um, so I think most of the comments about COVID don't age well. So I'm not, I'm I'm not going to try to forecast what's happening. I think pretty much everyone has gotten it wrong so far. I think clearly this is a massive disruption 
um, much greater than anyone really expected. I think in agriculture, in food, in India, initially it was very chaotic, but rather quickly the government recognized that agricultural value chains have to function. You know, otherwise rural India collapses and urban India starves. And as a result, over the last few weeks, you know, while things are still difficult, the agricultural economy is coming online much faster than, than almost any other uh, part of the economy because it has to function. As to how that's going to play out in the next 12 to 24 months, your guess is as good as mine. Um, clearly, there is a major reset in the venture ecosystem, and um, that, that is a long time coming. Right, we've had a, a long, a very long boom that has come to a pretty swift end. And what happens when we get on the other side of of COVID nineteen? I don't think anyone knows. Um, I think right now, all VCs are are being cautious, um, and the smart ones are being opportunistic. Well, that makes sense. Now let's shift gears a little bit and uh, head into our rapid fire segment where I try to understand the VC mentality in India, if that's, uh, if that's okay with you. Sure. One thing that you wish you knew about the agri-tech investing space that you wish you knew when you first started. I wish I knew more generalist VCs to collaborate with when I started. Um, you know, not coming from this background, not coming from this space, um, it was uh, it was a it was a steep learning curve. Was it also difficult for you to find your ground in India? No, because I, I I had moved in in '07. I had been coming to India since I was a teenager, and I, I worked for a very middle class Indian corporate where we had forty feed mills across the country, and I was constantly doing rural travel. So I think that that baptism by fire really, uh, really helped me in terms of, of learning the country and adjusting. Oh, well, that's great. You're, and what is your suggestion to anybody who is thinking about entering the space from an investor perspective? Um, find good co-investors like Omnivore who know it well. <laughs> I kind of knew you would say that. <laughs> Obviously. Do, you have an, do you have an anti-portfolio, Mark? And if so, what's one company that you regret you passed on? Um, I would say one company we regret we passed on is... is um, it's not really fair to say we passed on it because it was between our two funds. We had raised one, hadn't raised the other, but I would say Samunathi. Got it. Okay. And if you were to suggest one book to founders or investors, what would that be? If I were to suggest one book to to founders or or investors, um, something that helped you understand the Indian venture capital space a little more. You know, I don't I don't think there was um, I don't think there's a, a, a great book on on Indian VC uh, investing. Um, I would say probably um, one of my one of my favorite uh, books is a biography of General uh, George Dorio. General uh, General Dorio was a Franco-American military officer who um, who really started the American venture capital industry. 
Um, and there's a wonderful book about him called Creative Capital that I would I would recommend to anyone who's interested in VC. And I think when we were starting out um, being the first agri-tech investor in India, it was a lot like the early days of American VC when, when they were sort of making it up as they went along um, because we really didn't have a lot of co-investors in our early days. And so the book Creative Capital is one that I, I think everyone should read. I'll definitely look that up and uh, get my hands on that. And what is your advice to startups in the agri-tech space battling the COVID-19 situation? What are some of the things that you're noticing amongst your portfolio companies as well? I mean, look, I think, I think no one ever regrets um, bringing costs down, um, you know, getting closer to break even and conserving cash. And I think right now there is massive, massive uncertainty in the ecosystem. And so having, a, you know, having multiple plans that you've worked rigorously on now, even if you don't have to go through all of those, you know, increasingly difficult scenarios, you won't regret having that plan. And so I think right now, while everyone's stuck at home, you know, figuring out what you need to cut, how to conserve cash, and, and what to do if sales are down 20%, 40%, 60%, 80%, you're going to want to do that analysis and do that rigorous thinking now. That's great advice. And lastly, Mark, I read somewhere that you started your career in American politics. Could you tell us a little more about that? Uh, yeah, I, um, I worked in, in when, I, when I got out from my undergrad uh, at UPenn, I spent a couple of years working um, in, in domestic American politics, uh, largely with, with the Democratic Party and a um, policy and, and, and politics uh, consulting firm. So um, that was uh, very different from what I do right now, but, but certainly uh, taught me a lot about operating in chaotic environments, which has helped me throughout my entire career. Well, perfect, Mark. I could go on and on and pick your brain on a bunch of different topics, but I'd love to bring you back on the podcast again sometime in the future and talk about how the industry um, is, is, is operating post the COVID-19 situation, if that's really changed anything from a VC angle. But I had a great time talking and learning more about the agri-tech space from your experiences. And I'd like to thank you for your insights. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on. Love the podcast. And uh, yeah, on the other side of, of COVID-19, um, let's see what the world looks like. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. It was incredible to learn so much from you about agri-tech space in India and connect over our mutual investor relations as well. There are so many great insights in that episode and if I were to just highlight two of my standouts, I'd like to pick the part where you spoke about startups that get funded the most today, both in the Valley and otherwise, are the ones that really do the work that our mothers used to. And the second being some of the misconceptions about doing business in the agri-tech space in India. There's so much truth and depth in this episode for investors like myself to take away. I really appreciate your insights. If you like that and would like to receive more such episodes, please subscribe to the show. And while you're at it, leave me a review and rating so that others can discover it as well. Join me back again next week as I speak to another great guest. And until then, keep hustling.